Hello, welcome back to the Humble Perspectives podcast. In this episode, I'll be reading the scripture passages for the second Sunday of Advent, December 10th, 2023, according to the Revised Common Lectionary. A reminder that this is year B of a three-year cycle. The scripture readings for Advent begin with a focus on promises and prophecies that we generally associate with the second coming of Jesus. This was perplexing to me when I first began to use the lectionary because I had thought of Advent only as a preparation for celebrating Jesus' birth. As we often do during Advent, our family is again getting together, my wife and I with our children and grandchildren, to light the Advent candle and read the scriptures. This past Sunday, when we read Isaiah 64, verses 1 to 9, I saw in a fresh way, the glory of God's plan to redeem people and creation. In that passage, Isaiah is praying fervently for God to tear open the heavens and intervene with power on behalf of his people. To do it in a way comparable to the way he had delivered them from Egypt and made himself known to them at Sinai. And as Isaiah prays, he reminded God that he acts on behalf of the one who waits for him. That is, Yahweh, God, acts on behalf of the person who waits for him. And also, he said, for the one who rejoices in righteousness and for the one who remembers Yahweh's ways. All three of those, I think, are giving similar statements about the full picture of what it means to be in a relationship where God will act on our behalf. However, Isaiah immediately recognized that there are actually no one, none who fulfill that description. He says, we sinned, and we continued sinning for a long time. Therefore, he says, we have all become unclean. And he says, the best of our so-called righteousness that we can claim to have is only a filthy garment. Now, that's not just true of the people of Israel. It's true of every human being since Adam's fell, all except one. If in response to such a prayer, Jesus had come to judge the wicked and rescue the righteous and set the world right, all in one fell swoop, he would have had no righteous people to save. No, Jesus came the first time to be the righteous human. And then he, who had pleased God for us, became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in him, as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. It is because Jesus was born a human being, because he lived a life of perfect obedience, because he offered himself as the sacrifice of sins, because he rose victorious over death, and because he now reigns as the man of God's right hand, as we saw last week in Psalm 80, It is because Jesus came and did what he was sent by God to do that when Jesus returns, there will even be a righteous people ready to live eternally with God. Although there's much much of the emphasis in the passages we will read, today is still on the final fulfillment of all that God has promised to do for his people in the creation when Jesus returns. There's also in them specific reference to his ministry on earth 2,000 years ago. 
This is fitting because the first and second appearances of Jesus are the beginning and the end of a continuum, that is, the age of new creation. To us, there are two events separated by a long history. But in God's economy, from eternal perspective, they're just two aspects of the same redemptive movement. Now I will begin the readings for the second Sunday of Advent with my comments following each passage of Scripture. A reading from the prophets, Isaiah 41 to 11, and I'm reading today from the New American Standard Bible 2020 edition. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one calling out, Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. That is, clear the way for Yahweh in the wilderness. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low, and let the uneven ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice calls out, and then he answered, What shall I call out? Excuse me, a voice says, Call out. Then he answered, the prophet answered, What shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withered, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, the people are indeed grass. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Go up on a high mountain, Zion, messenger of good news. Raise your voice forcefully, Jerusalem, messenger of good news. Raise it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, Here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his compensation is with him and his reward before him. Like a shepherd he will tend his flock, and in his arm he will gather the lambs and carry them in the fold of his robe. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. As you may have picked up, there are several movements in here. There's an announcement of forgiveness of sins. There's a calling out that sounds like someone getting a road ready, get the ground prepared. God's about to show up. There's a promise that his glory will be revealed and all the flesh will see it as he shows up. And then there's a statement to call out that, hey, man's life is fleeting, but God's word stands forever. And then finally you get to the last two sections, more specifically the mountain of, of the announcement that Zion and Jerusalem are to be proclaiming. That is the good news. I just make this comment. In the Septuagint, the Jewish translation of the Old Testament scriptures, that word good news is euangelion. It's the same word that we get gospel from, the evangel, from all the related words, evangelize, proclaim the gospel. And in that gospel, it was particularly talking about Jesus' time. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. 
But it also talks about the Lord coming with might, with his arm ruling for him, and his compensation with him, and his reward before him, meaning that he's coming to give people their just due, to receive the righteous with a welcome, and to bring judgment and compensation, the wages of sin, for those who are unrighteous. And then we have this great picture of God as the shepherd king, tending his flock, carrying the lambs in his arms, carrying them in the fold of his robe, gently leading the nursing ewes. Now the immediate situation for this word, Isaiah 30, is in uh, also as reflected in Isaiah 39 and in 2 Kings 20, and again in a passage in 1 Chronicles for that matter, or 2 Chronicles for that matter. Hezekiah, king of Judah, was one of the few good kings. In answer to Hezekiah's prayer, when he was mortally ill, God gave Hezekiah another 15 years. However, perhaps because God was displeased with the way Hezekiah seemed to pout and beg for that healing, beg for those extra years, it seems like God may have been displeased or concerned with the state of where Hezekiah's heart was. Second Chronicles 32 says God left him to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. The way that test came was King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon heard that Hezekiah had been healed. So this powerful pagan king sends his envoys with messages and gifts to congratulate Hezekiah on this healing. I don't know what was in Hezekiah's mind. Perhaps he was flattered by this attention. But for whatever reason, he foolishly showed the Babylonians all the wealth in his treasure house and realm. And in doing so, he gave King Nebuchadnezzar good reason to invade this small kingdom. I mean, Judah was a relatively small place, and it's hard to get to because it's a mountainous region where Jerusalem is and the cities around there. Maybe Nebuchadnezzar would have overlooked him, but not when he knew about all that wealth. So God sends Isaiah to Hezekiah with a word that the Babylonians are going to invade and carry away all the treasure and even take some of Hezekiah's sons to serve as eunuchs in Nebuchadnezzar's palace. Rather than be appalled and repentant, by this announcement, Hezekiah is glad that the tragedy won't happen while he's alive. Hezekiah is glad, but for the people of Judah and for his own sons, this is terrible, tragic news, although most of them don't believe the prophet because there's so much wickedness in the land. Because of their unfaithfulness, God, the word is they're going to be conquered and exiled from the land that God had given them. But God was not writing off his people forever. He gave Isaiah wonderful words of hope. Those that I read, comfort, comfort my people. He promised that everything wasn't lost after all. That God at some time in the future would act favorably to them. That there would be comfort and kindness for them, peace and forgiveness. At some point, as we read, God promised to send a messenger, whom we now know was John the Baptist. 
John came to signal the time when the people must prepare the way for God himself to return to come to set things right. God's presence had been among them in the temple that Solomon built. His glory had filled the temple. Ezekiel was carried from the captivity in Babylon back and he saw the glory of God depart from the temple. There's no recorded thing in the Jewish writings that that ever suggest when the temple was rebuilt after the exile or when the temple was remodeled and expanded and made into something glorious under Herod. There's not a hint that God's glory, that God's presence ever filled those rebuilt temples. Uh, But through John the Baptist's message, as prophesied by Isaiah, God's saying, hey, I'm going to come back among my people again. And he did. In due time, Jesus came to dwell. The Greek word in John 1 says to tabernacle among the people of Judah and Galilee. And John wrote, we saw his glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1, 14. The Hebrew writer says Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. Judah, here is your God. Are you ready for him? The promise is sure. The word of our God stands forever. But there's a word of warning in this also. Human life is short. We all wither like grass and fade like flowers. Therefore, Through Isaiah, God calls for a corporate messenger to shout out the good news. Now that Jesus has died and been raised and is reigning from heaven, we are the ones, we are the Zion, we are the heavenly Jerusalem, as it says in Hebrews 12, 22. We are the representatives of God's government on earth. That is the meaning of Zion. Galatians 4:21 to 31 indicates the same thing. Revelation 22, it's the bride that's the heavenly Jerusalem. It's us who are to sound out loudly the good news that God has come. Here, we should be saying to people, in Jesus is your God. The good news proclaims reality that Yahweh, Israel's shepherd, has appeared. And he is Jesus, the good shepherd of John 10. Now, David was called from shepherding flocks to serve as God's human shepherd over Israel. In other words, God's kind of king is a shepherd king. The chief shepherd himself came to us. and He's not only the son of God, he's the son of David. He's the fulfillment of God's promise to a David to appoint for his people a son who would reign forever. He's the shepherd king that Isaiah prophesied about in, or Ezekiel prophesied about in chapter 34, 11 to 24. And he now reigns with all authority in heaven and earth. And now reigning from the heavenly throne, he says to us, Behold, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me, to reward each one as his works deserve. Revelation 22, 12. Which echoes the promise in Isaiah 40 that when he returns in glory, all flesh will see him. He's coming to reward. He's coming with his compensation with him. What a privilege we've been given. We have been given the responsibility, like John the Baptist before the first coming, to proclaim the good news. Only 
we don't just say he's coming to blow out the chaff, which he is, but he's coming to reign. And we can proclaim the door is open for everyone to become a part of his flock. Repent, the kingdom's at hand, John said, and so can we. A reading from the psalm, Psalm 85, the actual suggested reading is verses 1 to 2 and verses 8 to 13, but I think the whole psalm is important to read. Lord, you showed your favor to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the guilt of your people. You covered all their sin. Selah, which means think about it, or maybe it's a musical interlude, or but I always like the idea that Selah means think about it. Let me read it again, and then i ask you to think about it. Lord, or Yahweh, you showed favor to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the guilt of your people. You covered all their sins. Think about it. You withdrew all your fury. You turned away from your burning anger. So the first psalm opens there with, with remembering what God had done for his people in the past. We don't know what the exact situation is in the present when this was written, but apparently Israel's in trouble again because the psalmist, the psalmist, plural, restore us, God of our salvation. Cause your indignation toward us to cease. Cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Won't you revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy, Lord. Grant us your salvation. Then there's another shift as we go to verse 8. Now instead of praying from the standpoint of us, a psalmist says, I will hear what God the Lord or Yahweh will say, for he will speak peace to his people, to his godly ones, and may they not turn back to foolishness. Certainly his salvation is near to those who fear him that glory may dwell in our land. Graciousness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth sprouts from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. Indeed, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield his produce. Righteousness will go before him and will make his footsteps into a way. Psalm 85 has some of the same themes as Isaiah these psalmists or singers who uh, are singing this and praying this are the representative of all God's people. And they begin by reminding Yahweh that in the past he had shown mercy to his people. In the past he had given them forgiveness rather than destroy them in his anger when they rebelled against him. But at the time, as I said, when this psalm was written, here we are in trouble again, Lord. O God, restore us. O God, revive us. O God, give us once again reason to rejoice in your mercy and salvation. And then as the psalmist begins to listen for God, he's listening for God to announce peace toward his people. Well, we heard that in Isaiah 40. Comfort my people, speak kindly to them. Tell them their sins are forgiven. Tell them their guilt has been removed. 
I'm not angry with them anymore. I'm releasing them. So this is really powerful. But there's a warning, verse 8. He will speak peace to his people, to his godly ones. And then with that is the phrase, and may they not turn back to foolishness. Man, there's warnings in the New Testament for us when we put our faith in Jesus not to return to our past like a dog returns to its vomit or a pig to its mud wallow. He says his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Do you understand and do we understand how important is it to us to understand that God's purpose is for the whole heavens and the whole earth to be filled visibly with his glory so that his presence is visible to all, that his majesty, that his character is clear. Yes, it's built into creation, proclaim it, but our eyes are blinded. He wants it to be seen. He wants it to inhabit the land. And then we have these wonderful pictures of graciousness and truth coming together, of righteousness and peace kissing each other, of truth sprouting from the earth and righteousness looking down from heaven. A number of the church fathers, when they read verse 11, truth sprouts from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven, saw something pretty special there. They saw Jesus being born of a woman, he said, I am the truth, sprouting up from the earth, and yet at the same time, he's the righteousness of God being revealed, according to Paul. So he is coming from heaven. To give what is good in our land will yield its produce, to bring us back into fruitfulness. Remember in the garden when, uh, and in the early creation, Part of the curse was the weeds. Part of the curse was not that they wouldn't ever have to work, but their work would be made difficult because of the thorns and thistles and the weeds. But God's going to give what is good, and their land will yield. It will be fruitful again. Our lives will be fruitful, not just the land. Righteousness will go before him, and his footsteps will become our pathway, some translations say. In other words, we're called to follow in the way of the Lord. Let me reflect a few, little bit more on some of this. I hope you heard in 8 to 11 when I read that about truth and righteousness and gracious and, and uh, the, these words, salvation, glory. Echoes of that are all through the New Testament message. All of this came together in the person of Jesus Christ, beginning in the passages about his conception and birth. At his birth, the angels proclaim glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Jesus came full of grace and truth, John said. In Jesus the Messiah, the righteousness of God is revealed, Paul declared in Romans 3. And again he wrote, Jesus became to us or for us righteousness. Jesus himself said, I am the truth. And later he said, peace I leave you, my peace I give you. The psalmist had surely heard the words of Yahweh. He heard them, the word that was spoken through Yahweh when he became flesh and dwelt among us. Now a reading from the epistles, 2 Peter 3, 8-15a. 
But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be discovered. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found spotless and blameless by him at peace and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Time matters to us, but our God is I am, Yahweh. From his eternal perspective, all time is open to the one who proclaims through John the Revelator, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. Now when we think about Jesus' first coming and his second coming, we can be perplexed by his promise that he will return soon. Remember Revelation 22, verse 7, Behold, I'm coming quickly. Verse 12, Behold, I'm coming quickly. Verse 20, yes, I'm coming quickly. Some translations say coming soon. After all, we might think, haven't 2,000 years already passed since he ascended to the heavenly throne? What does he mean by quickly? When will his kingdom come? When will his will actually be done on earth the way it is in heaven, as we're called to pray? But Peter here reminds us that God's not bound by time. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. Psalm 90, verse 4, offers a similar perspective. It says, For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or like a watch in the night. <laughs> a thousand years is no more than, than a day, yet when you look back at it, from God's perspective, He doesn't even look back, He just sees it all. Nor... Is it any longer than a watch in the night? That would be three hours. There are four three-hour watches in the way the ancient world, the night, was divided. From an eternal perspective, the first and second comings aren't very far apart, no matter how long it is. They're only a part of one act. You know, for us, time can pass real slow in the present especially if you're anticipating something. This is, isn't this the slowest time of year as the kids are anticipating Christmas? Can't hardly wait. Is it ever going to get here? But looking back, the past most often seems to have simply flown by, as the saying is. Just ask someone like me who's elderly. Memories from 50 or 60 or even 70 years ago so often just seem like yesterday. Sometimes it seems like I can remember the things back then better than I can remember the things that did happen yesterday. Oh, we often long for Jesus' return. In these recent tumultuous times, I've heard more than one person say with longing, the only hope is for Jesus to return soon. Well, it's going to come, and... 
if we have time to look back at all before we're in eternity, it won't seem like very long, however long it might be. Now, a lot of people are trying to calculate when. As we talked about last week, that's not for us to know. He says that it's going to come like a thief. It's going to happen quick. I don't hear, think he's talking here about a literal destruction of the creation and then a restoration. Revelation 21, he says, Behold, I make all things new. He didn't say I make all new things, but it will be when it all comes to its culmination. It'll be immediate. It'll be dramatic. It'll be some kind of powerful change. And it might happen at any minute might happen at any minute. So what kind of people ought we to be as we continue to live? Well, Peter, that's Peter's main point. Make your conduct holy. Grow in godliness. Be diligent. Last week we talked about being about our assignment. He says be diligent to be found spotless and blameless and at peace not all stirred up not all anxious at peace and he says regard the patience of our lord as salvation that has really struck me recently when when we just say man there's no hope for this terrible world unless jesus comes soon jesus come soon well we do want him to come soon and he said he would come soon but this passage says God's patient, not willing for any to perish, for all to come to repentance. And it says to us, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Why should we, any less than God, not be more concerned for the people yet to repent than for us to be relieved of our troubles? That's worth thinking about. Let's learn to appreciate the patience of God. He's given us time to be ready. He's not willing for any to perish. Rather than bemoan our difficulties, may God help us to celebrate His merciful patience. He's a good, good God. And now a reading from the Gospels. Mark 1, 1 1-8. The beginning of the gospel, or the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Mark begins his account of the good news about God's kingdom and God's king who reigns with Isaiah's prophecy, which we had read earlier. 
and now see again. Now, how do you go about preparing the way of the Lord? Does he actually need a, a road? Does he need a path to walk on? Does he need the valleys filled up and the mountains lowered because he can't go up and down hills? Of course not. The way, the path that must be prepared to receive God our King is my own heart and life and yours. It's we who need to be prepared. Psalm 84, 5 says, Blessed is the person whose strength is in you, speaking to God, in whose hearts are the road to Zion. Zion represents the kingdom. It's the mountain, the hill in Jerusalem where the, where the, the king's residence was. Blessed is the person whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the roads to Zion. The roads to Jesus being revealed as king of the whole earth to everyone and his glory being seen, runs through our heart. What a picture. Oh, God, help us to have a road that's smooth, a road that's clean. Nothing in your way. So John came calling the people of Jesus' day to repent. That is, to change their way of thinking and behaving, to change the direction of their lives. And... Many, many came in the crowds and they confessed their sins, it said, and they were baptized by John under repentance to show that they were changing, that they were trying to get their lives ready for God to come. They were going to receive, they didn't know who it was going to be, but they wanted to be ready to change, to receive God when he came, and then Jesus came. And Jesus provided the forgiveness of sin. Sadly, many of them didn't receive him when he came. They couldn't see who he was. I don't know how many of those who were baptized didn't receive him, but we can assume that some did, but many of the Jews didn't. John said, this one that's coming after me is mightier than I. This mighty king who came to conquer the powers of darkness and death did not come with pomp and displays of military power, even though he had unlimited power. Rather, he came gentle and humble of heart. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to call us, his enemies, who had been in rebellion against him, to be reconciled and to live together with him in peace. He came as a king, but it's a shepherd king. Oh, what good news that is. He carries the lambs in his arms and he gently leads the ewes. How awesome is God's wisdom? How wonderful and amazing as we sing is God's grace. He could have scratched out his creation. He could have started over again. But no, he chose to become part of that creation in order to redeem sons and daughters who will reign with him forever when he culminates his restoration work and unveils the new creation for all to see. Father, help us in this season to appreciate 
who you are and what kind of king you are and what kind of king sits on the throne at your right hand, the eternal Son of God, the Son of David, a man who can empathize and sympathize with our weaknesses and cares about the weakest of the flock. O oh Lord, help us in these days to become like you so that we're ready for you and help us to be about the business of sharing your heart for those who are perishing but that might yet repent and turn to you and receive your salvation in Jesus name. God bless you all. May your continued preparations to celebrate Christmas in whatever way you celebrate it uh, be rich with the presence of the living Lord. So long for now.